Hello and welcome to the ACS Nano podcast for February 2009. I'm Penelope Lewis, Managing Editor at ACS Nano, and I'm joined by my colleague Sarah Tagan. Hi, Sarah. Hi, Penelope. Hello, everyone. On today's show, we'll learn more about using nanomaterials for therapeutic and diagnostic applications, including the use of carbon nanotubes as delivery agents to target cancer cells, and how surface curvature factors into the coverage and efficacy of targeting ligands on nanoparticles. Professors Jim Rustling and Chad Merkin will be joining us later to discuss these papers featured in the February issue of ACS Nano. But first, let's check what's happening on ACS Nanotation, the community website for nanoscience and nanotechnology. The What is Nano video contest is well underway, with new videos being submitted every day. There's still time to enter your own three-minute video describing what nano means to you and where you think the field is headed. You could win $500 in cash if you're picked as one of our lucky winners. Two cash prizes of $500 will be awarded, the People's Choice Award, judged online by the community, and the Critics' Choice Award, picked by a panel of expert judges and ACS Nanotation staff. You can enter as many times as you'd like, but hurry, the contest closes to submissions on March 15th. You can submit your entries and vote on your video and others by visiting the What is Nano contest page on ACS Nanotation at www.acsnanotation.org slash whatisnano. There's been a lot of recent research into using nanomaterials, including carbon nanotubes, for therapeutic or diagnostics. This research has implications for treating diseases as complex as cancer. Although significant strides have been made in this area of research, it is often difficult to assess the targeting and delivery schemes of these materials because of the challenges in obtaining results in vivo. Professor Jim Russling and his co-workers at the National Institutes of Health and at the University of Connecticut performed in vivo studies on a carbon nanotube bioconjugate designed to target cancer cells for delivery of cisplatin. Jim joins us today to discuss these exciting results. Hi, Jim, and welcome to the podcast. Hi. So can you tell me why are single-walled carbon nanotubes attractive as therapeutic or diagnostic imaging agents? Basically, it's been found that single-wall carbon nanotubes spontaneously enter cells. So that's sort of what you want in a drug delivery process. And what people have found, and we've confirmed this, is that if you put something on the nanotube that's a ligand for something that binds to a cell surface, like a cancer cell surface, then that entry into cell process becomes much faster and much more efficient. So that's basically why we're using carbon nanotubes. Nobody really knows what the detailed mechanism of this is, but we're trying to figure that out at some point. So could you describe for our listeners your bioconjugate system? What were you targeting and what was the delivery scheme? Well, our very talented collaborators at National Institute of Health are uh, experts in oral cancer. So oral cancer cells have lots of a receptor on them called epithelial growth factor receptor. So it's called EGF, and the receptor is called EGFR, right? So that means the biologists say that, that these receptors are overexpressed. So the oral cancer cells will have thousands more of these receptors on the surface than a normal cell. So what we did was took carbon nanotubes and we linked onto them the ligand that binds to this receptor, and that's called EGF. And then we linked onto them cisplatin, which is a sort of a first-line anti-cancer drug. And then we also linked onto them quantum dots so that we could see what was going on when these things went into cells. And we did this in vivo and in 
and in little mice, and we could see this carbon nanotube materials going into regions where uh, there was cancer and not going into regions where there wasn't cancer. So you were able to obtain results both in vitro and in vivo using the bioconjugate. Can you tell me a little bit more about what your in vivo studies showed about the nanotube bioconjugate? To make it very simple, the nanotubes with EGF entered the cells tenfold faster than those without, and the cells were killed. So the cancer didn't grow in mice that were treated in this way, and controls that didn't have the EGF, the cancer grew exponentially. This is a little bit different than a few previous studies which showed that nanotubes that didn't have this targeting mechanism still killed the cancer cells. Well, they might do that, you know, but it seems like if you have the ligand on there, it's much more efficient. And basically, both of the results happened in vivo and in vitro, so they're sort of very consistent in that. That's good. The in vitro systems obviously are, are easier for looking at. I'm wondering, can you actually directly attach cisplatin to EGF directly and get rid of the carbon nanotube, or does the carbon nanotube have a, an important function? Well, the strategy of having the carbon nanotube is you can load it up with lots of cisplatin molecules. Number one, if you attach cisplatin to the EGF, it might not bind properly, and you might get two or three or four molecules into the cell at one time. In this way, we're getting a big cargo of drug into the cell every time a nanotube enters the cell. That makes sense. We also hear a lot about the potential toxicity of nanomaterials, including nanotubes. Does your study address the possible toxicity implications of your system? We did some stuff on toxicity, but, you know, the sort of background of this is that what people have found is carbon nanotubes that are sort of pristine and not derivatized with anything, and when they're administered by an aerosol, they're quite toxic, and they'll accumulate in animals' lungs, but usually they're toxic when they're quite long, you know, longer than a couple of hundred nanometers. So what we're using are solubilized nanotubes because they have protein on them and they have lots of carboxylate groups. So these are polar groups that allow them to be solubilized. And so what people have found in other studies than ours is that if you solubilize the nanotubes, they're cleared out of animals quite quickly and much, much less toxic. Well, what we did was we took these mice, and after they'd been treated with the nanotube bioconjugates, there was accumulation in some other organs, but there was much more accumulation in the area, and the main organ was the, the lungs, other than the tumor. So I think there's ways of getting around this, and what we're working on now is to try to uh, solubilize our system more by using polyethylene glycol or DNA and wrapping the whole system in that. So the idea is if you can clear the nanotubes out of the other organs and allow them to concentrate into the tumor, then, number one, you decrease toxicity of the drug, which is really, really big problem in cancer. Because, you know, as many patients die from complications of drug toxicity as do from the cancer itself. And also the drug, the drug can often compromise their immune system, and people die from that. So, you know, this is a big, big, big problem that maybe... You know, when you say drug toxicity, people don't realize, but it's a, in cancer patients that have, you know, a serious cancer, it's, well, the toxicity of the drug is as big a problem as the cancer itself. So that's one of the things we're trying to address. And uh, I think that problem can be solved. Well, these results certainly are promising, Jim, and thanks for joining us today.
Okay, thank you. The 2009 Spring ACS National Meeting will be held on March 22nd to 26th this year in Salt Lake City, Utah. And all of us at ACS Nano are really excited for the program theme, Nanoscience, Challenges for the Future. ACS Nano Editor-in-Chief Paul Weiss is the thematic program chair, and together with ACS Technical Divisions, he has put together an exciting and forward-looking program. There will be more than 100 nanoscience symposia with over 300 sessions featuring everything from nanomedicine and nanotoxicology to energy applications to chemical patterning at the nanoscale and the future of nanolithography and much more. There really is something for everyone at this meeting. We are delighted to have Professor Angela Belcher from MIT present the keynote address on Sunday evening, From Nature and Back Again, Giving New Life to Materials for Energy. On Monday, we'll have a plenary lectures from ACS Nano authors Professors Vicki Colvin, James Hutchison, George Whitesides, and Grant Wilson, sponsored by ACS President Tom Lane and the Kevley Foundation. This is the first time the ACS meeting will include a keynote lecture and a plenary session, and we look forward to your feedback on how it works. Of course, there will be all the usual meeting events, too, like cutting-edge symposia, career seminars, networking opportunities with your colleagues, and, of course, free goodies from the exhibitors. ACS Publications will have a booth at the exhibition all week long, so stop by and see us. We'd love to meet you. And don't forget, the winners of our ACS Nanotation video contest will be announced during the meeting exhibition at the booth, so you'll want to be there for that. It really is shaping up to be a great meeting. We look forward to seeing you in Salt Lake City. DNA nanoparticle conjugates have been investigated extensively for therapeutic and diagnostic applications. The identity of the oligonucleotide ligands and their surface coverage play a huge role in their efficacy in targeting particular cells. For example, researchers have shown that the surface coverage of oligonucleotides on gold nanoparticles is affected by both nanoparticle size and shape, but a quantitative predictive model had yet to be described. Professor Chad Merkin and his group set out to develop such a model, and Chad joins us today from Northwestern University to describe their results. Hi, Chad, and thanks for coming on the show. Hi. So can you start by telling us why it's important to know and also be able to predict the coverage of surface ligands on nanoparticles? Yes, because uh, the number of oligonucleotides, or DNA strands on a particle, can dictate a lot of its uh, intrinsic properties and how it can ultimately be used in both diagnostic and therapeutic applications. For example, sometimes the oligonucleotides are used as amplifying agents in biodetection, and the more you have, the greater amplification you can introduce in a particular assay based upon them. So what are the different factors that affect the loading of oligonucleotides on gold surfaces? Well, it turns out a lot of things do. First of all, the charge of the DNA really controls its effective footprint. In other words, how big uh, you model it in terms of coating a particular surface. And you can control how much electrostatic repulsion there is based upon the use of salts, for example, during the loading of the oligonucleotides on the surface of the particle. So as you increase the salt concentration, you can pack in more oligonucleotides on a given surface. The way the oligonucleotides interact with the surface also can control their, their effective footprint. So if they lay down, they're obviously bigger than if they stand upright and outright. Finally, the structure of the particle surface itself can play a big role. A curved surface can allow you to put uh, different numbers of oligonucleotides on there than a flat surface. 
And the reason is, if you have a curved surface, there's a splaying of the oligonucleotides that decreases the interactions between them and effectively increases the number that you can put on a given surface. I see. So let's get to the crux of your paper. What did your model show, and can you describe it for our listeners? The model effectively describes what I just stated, and that is that as you move from a flat to a curved surface, you have to take into consideration the fact that you can put more oligonucleotides in because the inter-oligonucleotide repulsion decreases, especially as you move further from the surface. The curvature adds more free volume at the surface and allows you to create a surface that can accommodate more oligonucleotides and also a one that can uh, support the hybridization of complementary oligonucleotides more effectively. So if you think about it from the furthest point out coming onto the surface, on a curved surface, you're going to have more room or free volume to bring complementary oligonucleotides and combine with those oligonucleotides than, than in the flat surface case. So as you begin to create nanoparticles with more and more complex geometries, going, for example, from spheres to rods to for example, triangular prisms, that was one of the structures that we looked at, you have to take into account the different local architecture in predicting the absolute number of oligonucleotides that a particular particle can support. So what about other types of ligands? Does your model account for things like peptides or antibodies? I think it it could be adapted to that, but there will be a different set of chemical constraints that dictate how peptides and antibodies interact with the surface. We know a lot about DNA uh, and how to not only get it to bind to a surface, but to get it to stand upright. If you want to have good predictive capabilities, you're going to have to assume that all of the molecules that you're trying to adsorb onto a surface adopt a very similar orientation and one that can be modeled. If you have a lot of different orientations and interactions with the surface, then obviously the effective footprint will change from structure to structure to structure, and it'll be very difficult to quantitatively predict unless you know the weighted contributions of each of those. So I think if you develop the know-how to put down antibodies always in the same way or peptides always in the same way, you could create a similar model, but the information for doing that is not yet out there, whereas it is for the DNA. So I'm always interested to hear what people are working on in their labs. What's the most exciting project that you have going on right now in your lab? Can you pick a favorite? Well, that's like asking me to choose <laughs> one of my children, right? Right. No, I think that uh, where a lot of this is headed, you know, over, over the last uh, decade, we've developed a fundamental understanding of how particles can be modified with these types of biomolecules, oligonucleotides in particular. And we've developed a whole suite of bioanalytical tools on the detection side of things. Uh, This understanding of how to control surface architecture now is going to allow us to build structures that are not only interested in diagnostics, but also in therapeutics. And we're beginning to use these types of structures in a variety of new, what are called antisense therapies and siRNA delivery therapies that we think are going to have a very big impact, especially in cancer research and ultimately cancer therapeutics. So the hope is that one day these types of particles and this understanding of how to control surface coverage and architecture will lead to agents that are very effective in terms of treating cancer. Wow, so it sounds like these results have really widespread potential impact. So we wish you luck on these future studies, and thanks again for coming on the show. Okay, thank you very much. That's it for today's show. Thanks to Jim Russling and Chad Merkin for joining us on the podcast. And thanks to you for listening. 
Is there something you'd like to hear on a future show? Send us your suggestions or comments to acsnano at acs.org. Join us again next month for more highlights from ACS Nano and ACS Nanotation, and be sure to visit us online at www.acsnano.org.